This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Try to put on the show. It is Danny and Gallant, second hour of our show. We got quite a lineup for you today. We've talked to Marquise Blair. We got Jerry Depoto at 8:30. We got Jared Kelnick at 9:30. He's the one that started that ninth inning rally last night with a double. Right now, we got Brack Heward coming to us from the white water of Breckenridge, Colorado. It's time for Blue 42. Here we go. This is Blue 42. We're gonna go red, right, tight, close, sprint left, G U corner, half back, flat on two. Ready? Right. Now here's your host, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Blue 42. Brock, have you been watching Hard Knocks? You know what? I have it on the old DVR for tonight when I get back. How how was episode one? It was pretty solid. I think it was solid compared to seasons past, Danny. I don't think it was terrible like we have seen in the case of the Rams and the Chargers. That was boring. I think with the Raiders, it was a little bit. There was something I saw, Brock, that I, I wanted to pick your brain on because I feel like you often see coaches do what Mike McCarthy did. Mike McCarthy decided that he was going to show a clip from Austin Powers, uh, <laughs> and he decided to turn it into some sort of theme that he wanted the Cowboys to enact in the midst of practice called Mojo Moments. What's the corniest thing that an NFL coach tried on you and your teammates where it felt like he believed he really had something, but everyone was looking at each other in the room with raised eyebrows? (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's pretty funny. Yeah, I think that because of technology today and the ease of so much, you know, of that material there to be made, and and so many of these staffs are so huge, Paul, that you've got – you know, lots of personnel that, that, that work those angles. I mean, in my day, uh, honestly, Tony Dungy sat up and, and had a old school projector like his mom and dad teachers did with the, with the plastic slides and he would, the overlays. And, and some of the audience doesn't even know what I'm talking about right now, but, but he would put those up and he would write on them. Uh, that was the, that was the level of technology. I don't think there was one movie clip. I don't think there was any of that while I was there. And, uh, and Holmgren probably wasn't real big on that either. Um, so I, I don't think I had that experience. But as you said that, I do remember Jim Zorin telling me about one of the coaches that he coached for in college, one of the head coaches who said, hey, listen, I'm going to get really upset at practice today. I'm going to have these uh, the equipment guys set up a bunch of pads in boxes. And I'm going to tell you, like, I don't like the energy of our team. And I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to kick all the boxes and kick all the pads. I'm going to make a huge scene. And I just want to give you guys a heads up that I've got this all orchestrated and, and, and preordained. And the coaches were like, oh, I don't know about that. But okay. And it was just a fail. I mean, just an epic, epic fail. Because I think players can feel when it's not organic or disingenuous. I would say, in talking to a lot of the guys that have been in that locker room for years with Pete Carroll, I think a lot of the work that he does and the, and the movie clips and the fun and the videos that he has, I think he's that place pretty alive. So, uh, that, unfortunately, Paul, this is one of my old guy. I'm an old guy. And 20 years ago, coaches were old school, and we didn't do and have fun in meetings. We got yelled at, and, and we had to look at plastic overlays. So, a little different era than the one that I played in. You're probably better off for it, though. Though, that Jim Zorn story sounds a lot <laughs> like the uh, bizarro uh, Ted Lasso led 
Tasso. Uh, the, the first question I have for you, Brock, has to do with Russell Wilson's court. It does feel like they are pressing on the Seahawks' toes again. And I would point to that story about how Russ would be willing to take a restructure for Jamal Adams or Dwayne Brown contracts. When you see that, yeah, okay, that sounds like he is being selfless, but the Seahawks don't really need to ask him for that. They also probably don't need to restructure Russell Wilson's contract for extensions with either of them. How peaceful really is this piece in our time that we thought we may have reached this offseason? Yeah, I think it's it's rather peaceful, Paul. I I do. I I think these are some of the... You know, some of the PR plays that the team plays, you know, they've got a whole staff and, and a department that works to make sure in, in their communications that they protect their players and their coaches. And, and Russell has a huge marketing team and agent and everybody else that wants to make sure they're protecting his brand and his curating and everything else. And I think this is just kind of the, the interplay between elite franchise quarterbacks at this level and, and the team that surrounds him, as you said, the camp and court that surrounds him. And, you know, the, the way the team goes about doing that when, when they want to protect themselves and their players or their coaches as well. So I don't think it's anything outside the realm of normal. Uh, I don't think it's terribly unhealthy. I think you're right. I saw your tweet about that, Paul. I, I don't think the team needs to do that. They've got plenty of cap space. And frankly, you know, I don't know why Russ in some ways would want to as well because, you know, it could make it harder for him if, you know, after this season he wants to, to reevaluate things as well and, and not have a bunch of dead money locked up in the salary cap for the Seahawks to have to deal with long-term as well. The whole thing is weird, right? It feels like that's being thrown into a situation where it doesn't belong, right? Like that, There's yeah. a way that Seattle handles its payroll. It feels like that is an attempt to put some pressure on the team or make them look bad of like, hey, we're all trying to do the right thing here. And it's, I don't know, I, I felt it was kind of posturing. You think there was an eye roll upstairs with Matt Thomas and John Schneider? Uh, yeah. When that, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think I, so, too. Like, come on. <laughs> what are we, sure what are we doing? We don't, need, we don't need it. We don't need your money. We don't need your cap space. We can create it other ways. We've got enough, actually, as it is, to, to do the deals if we want to do them. Now it's incumbent upon, uh, you know, Jamal, really, first and foremost, to, to sign the dotted line. All right. Question two. We started the show with this. Which contract is more important for Seattle to get done, Jamal or Dwayne? Oh, I, I think it's Jamal. Yeah. Because I think once you get Jamal done, that, you know, as we've talked about, that gives you then the opportunity to lay out the rest of the game plan. You know, on Wednesdays, we had base offense and defense. And that, that kind of gives you, this is during a normal week in the NFL, that, you know, Monday you come in, you, you watch the tape, you condition a little bit, Tuesday's an off day. But the coaches spend all day Tuesday putting together their base plan, all their first down and second down. And that's what, to me, Jamal Adams is an analogy is. Like, this is the bulk of our work week, man. This is first and second down. This is the majority of the snaps. Now, it's not third down or nickel or red zone or short yardage or all the rest of the work we're going to get done uh, in two minutes, Thursday and Friday. But Jamal feels like just, okay, this is just base foundational stuff. We love him. We love his juice. We love everything he brings. You know, he is very like-minded with the head coach. Uh, they see the world. They compete in the world the same exact way. This is a young, foundational piece that we have got to lock in. So I, I think that's a priority, Danny, and it's a, and it's a much bigger chunk. You know, it's, it's got a lot, a lot of zeros. It's, it's got some heavy percentage of the cap that's going to eat up. But once first and second down are done, 
then that gives you an opportunity to start to tackle, you know, tackle red zone and third down and, and the other areas that you need to win. There's more potential for regret, though, with the Jamal Adams contract, too, right? With how long it is, with the injuries that he dealt with last year, with the fact that maybe he's not as impactful in pass coverage as you would like to see Paul's him. Paul's trying to trick you here, Brock. He's trying to trick you. I mean, I'm not yeah, trying to trick anyone. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you. Yeah, There's, I saw. See, Paul, I do my work, man. I read Danny's article. I, I saw Danny's piece, 710 Sports, that, that talked about these contracts actually for players at the stage of the career with Dwayne Brown, be it Cam, you know, be it Marshawn, be it some of the older players that you give contracts to that, you know, I mean, Jamal is still 26 years old. You know, he's not 30 yet. This is the absolute prime physically of his career. Do you have concerns about his body? Yes. Does he? Absolutely. And that's why he wants to get some of that, you know, those guarantees and the bonuses pushed up from year three to year one or two. And the Seahawks are like, yeah, not not the way we do it, not the structure we do it. So you can keep banging your head, you try to keep tackling me and run through this wall and blitz me. But this is the way the structure is going to be set up. So, no, I think from a, from a risk standpoint, I'm I'm pretty comfortable where Jamal is in his career. Frankly, I'm comfortable where Dwayne is too. You know, I think this is a different era than even those guys, Danny, that you wrote about five years ago, ten years ago, over the course of Pete and John's career. Off-seasons are limited. In-season contact is really limited. Contact overall in the NFL is not what it used to be. And we're seeing offensive tackles play into their late 30s. So I'd be comfortable risk-wise getting Dwayne done, too. I look at that contract, too, with Brown, and I, I compare it to Andrew Whitworth. If we're taking a look at the number one and number two pass block win rate tackles in the NFL, Whitworth was number one and Brown was number two, and Whitworth's 39, and he's in the midst of a three-year, $30 million deal. There's no guaranteed money the next couple of seasons, so they can get themselves out of it, L.A., but he's going to turn 40 this year, Whitworth, and it doesn't seem like his play is slipping. So I, I feel like $10 million a year for a left tackle like that, that maybe you get at a discount because of his age, That's that's... I think really good situation for Seattle actually to have potentially well, on their hands, all things considered. Yeah, yeah and that's where Dwayne's number is this year, right? right. He's set to make ten million bucks. What we don't know, and it's been pretty, you know, documented that, that you know the guys at the Times with the numbers with Jamal, you know, how realistic are those? You know, trying to listen as those reporters are to both sides of it. You know, what we don't know what Dwayne's asking for. Is Dwayne asking for an Andrew Whitworth extension? Is he asking for, you know, $10 million a year? Or is he looking at the cap explosion of the next couple of years and saying, hey, man, I'm one of the three best left tackles in the game. You know, don't, don't pin me at that number of Andrew Whitworth, who's a little bit older than me and more beat up than me. You know, that, that's the one piece of the puzzle that I've not caught wind yet. And based on, you know, where the two sides are standing, it feels like those two are really far apart for an extension number. Question number three. Brock, Kevin Clark did an interview with Patrick Mahomes for uh, The Ringer, and it was an interesting piece. You know, we look back at the Super Bowl, and I think a lot of people would point to Kansas City's offensive line, the lack of protection that they gave to Patrick Mahomes and the big changes that they made this offseason, and they would think, yeah, it was the offensive line that lost in that game. But Patrick Mahomes has had a pretty interesting perspective on that game since watching it back, and he found, watching it back, Sometimes when I get hit early, I don't trust staying in the pocket and going through my reads. I kind of get back to that backyard style football a little bit too much. And you could definitely see that in the Super Bowl. There were times where the pockets were clean and I was still scrambling. 
what's the common experience for all quarterbacks facing pressure? Because I know some guys have the ability, like Mahomes, like Russell Wilson, to escape pressure like that. But it does seem as if that is something that can get you to just completely forget all of the things that you were supposed to do. <laughs> Mahomes clearly yeah. feels like that was the case in the Super Bowl. Well, you're going to talk to Jerry Depoto here in just a little bit. And, you know, he's a former big league pitcher and reliever in particular. And, and to me, that's where the most parallel is in, to the game of baseball and to pitchers who get sped up. I think that's the best way that, you know, as an analyst, when I'm watching games and I'm calling games, like, yep, yep, this quarterback has gotten sped up, you know, whether it is through actual contact, whether it's through the blitz. Heck, even Tom Brady, when they were 18 and 0, 19 or whatever they were in the Super Bowl, and that old NASCAR package came speeding at him, uh, his clock got sped up. So QBs want to play in rhythm. There's a there's a tempo and a timing to, to what you do in pass routes and in every you know in the way that, that you want to play. And there's you know everything is timed up together. You start to speed that up. You start to hit them. You start to move them. You start to get them out of that rhythm. And even the goat. Uh, who I got to see on Sunday night, even the GOAT in his prime, you know, with the Patriots and the Giants, got his clock sped up, and he didn't have an answer in that Super Bowl. Uh, neither did Mahomes, unfortunately, as he looks back and, and, and watches that tape. And that's, you know, been a big conversation with Russell. And I think a, a really good, probably, segue and conversation into exactly why Pete Carroll hired the guy he hired. To get the ball out of his hands, to keep him in rhythm. You guys, Paul in particular, have watched a ton of practice. You've seen more easy completions fall out of his hand in less than two seconds. So not letting that defense dictate, not letting that blitz and that rush, you know, speed you up. But offensively, you know, holding enough cards in your hands that you can control the timing and the tempo. I feel like this is a double-edged sword because on the one hand, that idea of trusting protection more and learning to do that, and you probably – Brock, you've probably got a better perspective on anyone than anyone <laughs> on on what can happen. Yep. Like seriously, like your senior year at the University yep. of Washington, it, it 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 can impact a quarterback, and it's not it's not the quarterback's fault. the The other part of it is that you have such an upside with Russ's scrambling. I I'll be very Correct. interested, and I I do think there's going to be a learning curve here of of Russ trying to fit into and understand what he gets from from this new offense. I've been encouraged. Peter King was out there, and he said he sees more from Russ. Uh, acting like a coach, pointing receivers where to be. That's the next step of his career is to kind of be the guy that it's not just his legs, but he uses his big quarterback brain, as Alex Gibbs would say, to outthink the defense. Yes, and you know, though, uh, to your point, exactly where this is going if there's not a lot of production, uh, if there's not a lot of points. You know, if it looks like that mock game, and wow, that was awesome, you moved the ball up and down the field, but you settled for four field goals, right? And, and where is the explosive plays? Where's... You know, where's yeah. that Pete Carroll who's, you know, said on the record, I don't love dinking and dunking the ball around, right? I like to run it and take my shots, and, and that is in his background. So, you know, and I know this is all great. This is wonderful training camp fodder. It'll be fun, you know, to dig into this weekend, game number one against the Raiders, and then we'll get to see it in two others. But you know and I know if, if points aren't being scored, and more importantly, if explosive plays are not coming, you know where the conversation is going to go, and that is, man, why doesn't Russell use his legs? Why doesn't he do what he used to do? Why doesn't he make all of those plays? Russell's unique. You're taking away his greatest skill set, which is his ability to improv and his ability to make those big plays. So, uh, yeah, this won't be a conversation that dissipates over the course of the season. Brock, we always love talking to you. Get back out on those white water rapids. Keep the kids safe. (laughs) 
Helmet up. Have a, have a good day and stay afloat. We will, and I can't wait to talk to you on Monday after watching these Seahawks this weekend. And gosh, it's going to be fun to actually see uh, see this whole new system against somebody else. And so much to, to dig into and talk about. And and by the way, tell Jerry thankful for the the good win last night. Uh, it was just time to get back on the on the one run winning side of things. So nice CDMs get a win too. He is Brock here. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you on Monday. You, uh, Brock is with, with us on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursdays. Uh, Michael Bumpus will be with us for Blue 42 tomorrow. Our training camp coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. Paul, I want to go back to something we mentioned early in the show about Alden Smith. And most people know now he got released yesterday. And it's there's no specific reason that's been given. It's been a very general sort of he broke the trust. I, I think it's pretty clear that he... He came to Seattle with a very firm understanding. There was an understanding when he signed of what sort of conditions he would have to comply with. He's someone that has spent years out of the league. He's dealt with substance abuse issues. He's dealt with criminal allegations, including a domestic violence allegation. You asked the question of, do you keep taking shots? Do you keep giving jobs to guys that are like him or like Josh Gordon's very similar in that players who have had incredible talent and success in the league who have fallen out of the league entirely uh, due to substance abuse issues and are looking for a way to get back. What, what, I'm, I'm pretty passionate and pretty firm on my belief that you do keep giving. What's your perspective on it? I feel like at a certain point, don't you feel like you've learned the lesson that it doesn't usually work out? And maybe that's not a way to operate. You don't want to exclude the 1% chance that you might end up hitting the lottery by finding a guy that's been an afterthought in league circles and all of a sudden you bring him back and he's able to overcome those personal issues. And he's also, more importantly, let's just be real, and he sport as cutthroat and as competitive as football that this guy's actually a plus for you. When you have someone like Josh Gordon come in and it doesn't work out, then you bring in somebody like Alden Smith and it doesn't work out. I, I, I find it surprising that you would continue to keep going down that road because ultimately – you are playing with the lottery, aren't you? I mean, you are hoping that these guys are able to make the best of their situations and overcome their own personal issues. And I hope they overcome their personal issues too. But an NFL team is not necessarily a charity. It's, You're right. It's not. And that was the one thing, because you said, hey, I get being empathetic. And and I, I got where you were going, because I, I guess my my rationale for it is not so much, hey, you need to give these guys a shot. You need to, because it's not, it's not a nonprofit motive. It's not a, hey, you owe them an opportunity to, or anything like that. I, I think I see it, I see it more as if you've got a player like that who can get squared away, you have the ability to get better performance than you would get from someone of a similar salary or, or the, the, the player that you're employing, Alden Smith was making like $1.1 million dollars. I think they guaranteed him $100,000. If, if he is able to stay sober and be functional, like he has the ability of being much better than another guy you would get for that salary s- slot. That, that you have, that there is an upside. And that's, I guess that's separate, but it, there's, there's a little bit of, hey, you're giving him an opportunity to, to, re, to rework things in his life and giving him a chance to get a foothold. And I don't see those as bad calculations for a football team to make. Even though it sounds very crass, and I'm kind of divorcing it, and and to say, 
the flip side of that is kind of what you're saying. And we got a text that I wanted to read, which was quit painting this as a good thing. Alden Smith being there. It's from the 253. These guys have had nine plus chances. What example does it set to employ these guys that can't stay out of trouble? Because that's the other side, right? Is that you just keep giving opportunities to someone who's probably not going to make the most of it in the hopes that they do so you can get that one year of productivity out of out of them and you're still dedicating resources to these guys too you yeah know, it's not as it's not as if you're just say all right let's see what happens and if it doesn't work no i mean with josh gordon and with alden smith they had support systems that were in place the same yeah. kind of support systems that was in place for Alden Smith in Dallas, where I believe it was a sober house, and there are actually people that are keeping an eye on him to make sure that I he's able I think it was the same thing here. I think right. he's living in a sober living facility here as well. Yes. So, I mean, these are things that you do have to invest in, and I would also look at the rest of the roster. Sadly, this is not how it works in really anything in life, but there are going to be people that are working at this place, and they're going to look at this, and they're going to say, like, what the hell? I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to. I show up. I'm responsible. I am accountable for my own decisions. And because of that, I make sure that I make the best possible decisions. And yet here's this guy and he's getting another chance. Screw that. Why? What's the point? You know, I, I would I would be frustrated if I were somebody on the border of the roster. But at the same time, is that person going to make more of a difference? And that's, what that's, where, gets I, that's where I come back. Because one of the... And part of the, the rationale or justification in my mind is that you're not, you're not risking much. Alden Smith not working out I don't think is a setback for Seattle. It's a bummer, and he's someone that could have – but it's not like, oh, man, we've got to reconfigure our pass rush plans. It was like, oh, that was a guy we hoped could make a difference, and then he's not. That it's much more similar to a- any other player that you've got, hey, he's got a chance of making the roster, and if it, it works out, it happens. I'm always very leery of someone who goes through a very high profile and loses their job because of an off-field incident or, or, or substance problems who you then give not quite as big a contract to but still invest heavily thinking, okay, I think he's, gonna, he's got it straightened out now. And, and maybe that's the threshold I go, that if it's just a matter of giving a dude a job, if it's just a matter of giving him a, a chance to compete for a roster spot, I don't see... I think it's good and fine practice to give all kinds of guys opportunities, no matter what their baggage is, as long as there's a criteria for here's what's acceptable while you're here. If you break that, no questions asked, we're going to go a different way. I, 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 don't, I don't see a problem with kind of continuing to take that approach like what Seattle's done with Alden Smith and Josh Gordon. But it didn't work out for either situation. No. I would imagine that they're going to continue with the approach of, all right, let's see what happens with a lot of guys – I would wonder how many organizations would continue to operate that way. I mean, I know that Cincinnati surely did for a really long time where they were bringing in guys who had checkered pasts, and I think largely because they realized that they would allow them to bring them in at a discount rate. I do think Cincinnati is that cheap. But uh, other organizations, we've seen it happen as well in New England. In some places, are able to make it work out. But I think that at a certain point, too, you might have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm not a miracle worker. What am I doing here? What am I doing? And, and, and I would say to this point in camp, the one drawback that I think actually could be legitimate is that you saw Alden Smith out there a lot. He got a lot of reps. And he looked good, but he got out a lot of reps, and now all of a sudden he's no longer a part of the equation. 
did that perhaps get in the way of development for some of your pretty young defensive linemen where Alton Robinson or it's Rasheen Green who we talked with yesterday or or LJ Collier is, is someone perhaps missing out on what could have been valuable time because they decided to do this Alden Smith experience. It's Danny Gallant. It's a very good point, Paul. We got Jerry DePoto, Mariners General Manager, joins us next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Be talking to the Mariners GM here. Coming up in just a second. And it's it's been a tough week for the Mariners. Getting a little bit better. They've been allowed out of timeout. Like, we, we've, we made that decision, correct, Paul? They were placed into timeout yesterday after the sort of back-breaking stomach punch of a loss on Tuesday. They're still struggling to score runs, but they get a walk-off victory last night. you got to feel pretty good about that. They need to score more runs. I have a hard time feeling a lot better about last night's victory because, look, they're, they're really just struggling to score right now. And, I mean, some guys are hitting. You know, you're seeing... Jared Kelnick picked things up, but I I am just getting tired of, of the complete issues that they're having at the plate. I mean, this is Texas. You should be able to score. It's Danny and Gallant, and we are joined now by Jerry DePoto, who's with us on the Issaquah Pest Control Hotline. And First of all, Jerry, thanks, as always, for taking the time to join us. You got it, guys. Jared Kelnick has a heck of a double last night. We're going to talk to him coming up at 930, and I thought that was a good place to start because we've seen some – whether it's more consistent success, there's been talks about changing his his stance or other adjustments that he's made. From your perspective, what are you seeing from your young center fielder? I think a lot of improvement and and just generally a change in his mentality. We we you know Jared is a very intense player and that hasn't changed, but he's managing it in a much more productive way. And you know you see it in last night's game. That's a, that's not a traditional double. That, that's a hustle double that. That you know his intensity, his drive really created, and I think his swing has been in a really good place. But I think his his mind has been in an even better place in the last two three weeks. He's been very good. We've also been seeing some really hot play out of Abraham Toro to his early start with the Mariners. What is it about him that has allowed him to maintain the level of success that he has had right out of the shoot? And I mean, even in that series against the Mariners when he was still with the Astros yeah and this you know we, we've talked about this a little bit this dates back to June when when he came up to replace you know then injured Alex Bregman he's been really good since that point and you know just fabulous since he joined the Mariners I think two things really stand out with Abraham one is just the awareness of where his the barrel is you know where his the bat barrel is in the strike zone and then his strike zone judgment you know he knows what pitches to swing at and and i I think in general that skill set always plays it's uh it's he's got some power he's a switch hitter with feel from both sides he uses the field to hit he can run as we've seen he can play defense there's a there's a lot of things to really like about abraham but the two things are really strike zone awareness and barrel awareness that just jump off the page we're talking to Jerry DePoto. Jerry, I want to go back to Jared's sort of mindset because you, your familiarity with the game. One, one of the things I love about baseball is the different mentality 
that can lead to success. Every guy has their own way of approaching it, whether it was Tony Gwynn, who is as amiable uh, a personality as you're ever going to encounter, to other people who were more intense and radiated that. Does does Jared's personality, does his intensity, does it remind you of anyone or of there other players that you've seen that, that played with that, that kind of fire? Oh, yeah, I think so. There, there have been players through the years that span from, you know, like the Brett Phillips super carefree and, and you know, I'm, I'm living my best life to, to Jared who, you know, really grinds through it and, and is focused and intent on, on being great. And, and I think each one of the players in between has their own way of dealing with it. And you know, it reminds me a little bit of a former teammate of mine, Jeff Kent, who, you know, wound up becoming an NL MVP, had a great career. And, you know, he, he was that same way, so focused and driven every day when he woke up to, to go to the ballpark and, and, and beat somebody. Uh, and more than that, to, to maximize his own skill set. I, I think those are things that really leap out with, with JK. And, and I, I could point to other players through the years who had a lot of those same, you know, intense qualities. You know, among whom I, I, Albert Pujols had a lot of those same focus and drive qualities that, that made him great. And, and I think that's, that, that portends good things for Jerry. Since the start of the month, it's been tough for the Mariners to score runs. And, you know, going back to Toro, obviously adding him has definitely given the offense a bit of a boost. Do you look back at this past weekend series against New York, though, and maybe wonder, is there anything that we could have done more to add bats? I'm sure that you were making all sorts of phone calls before the trade deadline. It does feel, though, at this point in time that runs are just really hard to come by for this team. Yeah, they have been. I think the, you know, even headed into the final days of the, the deadline, we were engaged with, with quite a few teams on a lot of players, most of whom by the end you know, would have qualified as short-term solutions. But we, we weren't able to, to drive it home, either A, not willing to give up the, the, the requested, I guess, ransom, or B, we just fell short of what somebody else was willing to do, I guess, going out on a 10-day road trip and losing six out of 10. And I, and I believe we lost by a collective seven runs. We just, we, we had a really tough time scoring. And they were playoff atmosphere type games. And, and I think it was a great experience for our guys. But it's, uh, I, I can't really say that we would have been in, a, in an, an incredibly different situation if we would have made one trade on Friday. We we played hard. We were playing very good teams. And you know, it's a, sometimes you, you live by the sword, die by the sword. We have been on the good side of a lot of one-run wins. And this, uh, this past week, we're on the bad side of a lot of one-run losses. And that's, a, that's part of the price you pay. Jerry, you've talked to us before about kind of a 1,000 at-bats, being a general benchmark for knowing what a player what a guy's going to do at, at the major league level or having a good idea, a sense for who he is. I was looking through the, the roster right now among your hitters, and you basically got three guys in your everyday lineup right now that have a thousand at bats in, in, in over the course of their career Seeger, Hanniger, and then I think JP Crawford's there now, though JP doesn't have, there's, I'm not sure if he has many seasons, any seasons with more than 500 at bats. How good a sense do you have? for what kind of offense this group will eventually produce? I have a growing sense. And, you know, we do, we do track players effectively against history and against themselves. And, and I do think that a thousand, you know, at bats is a pretty good barometer by which to measure, you know, what, what a player is doing or will do. They usually tell you over the course of that amount of time, which is a, 
little short of two seasons. Uh, and, and I think, you know, what you're suggesting or bringing up, Danny, is, is reflective of where we think we are in this rebuild. We're just a little over two seasons into this rebuild. And, and we are just a little over one season into introducing a lot of these young players to the big leagues. So uh, we've, we've cautioned throughout and we've pounded it internally. Hey, discipline is the shortcut. We're going to stay focused on, on the plan. We're not going to deviate. And we're going to give these players opportunity when they need a breather. We're going to give them a breather. But this is our chance to develop a young core. And we think we're seeing that. Whether it's the, you know, the more recent play for, for Jared Kelnick, it was, you know, last year's contribution in the early season, uh, look at Kyle Lewis. Unfortunately, he's not out there. It's the, it's the growth of JP Crawford. It's the, you know, it's, it's what we're seeing here with, with Abraham Toro, who, you know, who is 24 years old and he's part of this, you know, for the next five years, which is a fun thing to, to consider as well. So it's a, and the pitching has been terrific and it's the same way there. It's usually about 150 inning barometer to, to get a good sense of where you are with your pitchers. So uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the progress we've made, but we still are very young. And, and as a result, we're, we're a little bit volatile and we tend to go, you know, high and low. On that minor league side of things, Emerson Hancock, he comes up to the double-A level. looks really good last night. Noel V. Marte is on fire this past week. What have you been seeing in your observations of those two? And what is it that they're going to need to work on as they, as we hope to see them continue to rise the ranks quickly? I guess those two specifically, and I could cite others in the system who were really excited about the progress they're making. But Noel, what he's doing at 19 years old is pretty awesome. You know, OPSing about 850 as a pro, it's it's been two seasons really. His his 17 and 19 year old seasons really add up to to what appeared to be a special talent and. You know, he's, uh, he's young, he's five tools, he, we think he's got the chance to stay at shortstop. If not, the bat's going to play big enough to move to other spots. You know, we're satisfied with where he is in the development, and we don't want to move him too quickly. And we, we don't need to now. We have players lined up and, and just allow him to grow at his pace. In Emerson's case, he's the sixth pick in last year's draft, one of the top college pitchers in the country for his three years at Georgia. We've had starts and stops with him, you know, this season as we try to build his workload after what, what equated to a missed year. And the biggest thing for Emerson is just pitching innings because what you saw last night in his double A debut is that's how good he can be. It's, it's mid upper nineties. It's sync. It's a good slider, a good change up. It's a lot of strikes and a real polish to him. And I can say the same about George Kirby and, and with both Kirby and Hancock. You know, these are guys that have thrown less than 100 professional innings, and they're already in double A, which I think speaks to both their polish and, and their really their talent. They'll come quick. He is Jerry DePoto. He's the Mariners general manager. Jerry, we always appreciate uh, your time and your insight. And, hey, we're looking forward to seeing the offense start to fire up and build on last night's win against the Rangers. I, I, I'll be right there with you. I'm looking forward to seeing that. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. All right. Thanks, Jerry. That is Jerry DePoto. Uh, we still have Jared Kelnick, who we're going to talk to coming up at 930. Coming up next, got a couple more questions to find out whether or not you're buying it. Yep. Russ saying the Seahawks can be the number one offense. Can we, can we get a buyer? Can we get a buyer? Anybody want to raise a paddle? We'll find out next.
You're listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Do you want to play a game? Yes. It's called Are You Buying It? We've been playing are it a little bit of late. Are you buying it? We've got a couple of things that we're going to sift through as we continue to get through Seahawks training camp. Russell Wilson said recently that he believes that the Seattle Seahawks can have the number one offense in the NFL. It's the kind of talk that you would expect out of Russell Wilson. It's the kind of talk you would probably expect out of any quarterback. Danny, are you buying that? Can they be? Yes. Will they be? No. Sold in the back row. Thank you very much. You're the buyer. (laughs) Can they? Yes. Will they? No. It's a, it's a house of cards. I don't think they can because over 17 games, you're expecting, I think, a team that's rather top-heavy to go through it 100% healthy. Chris Carson, injury issues a lot. Tyler Lockett, he's had a tough time finishing the season healthy, and right now at wide receiver, after him, it's kind of questionable as far as what you have at your receiver uh, position depth-wise. And on the offensive line, too, I mean, we already see what, a, I would say, shaky situation it is without Dwayne Brown and with some of the injuries that you have for Ethan Posick, one of your starters, and, and as your backup offensive lineman too. So I, I feel like there's going to be some stretches, Danny, where injuries are potentially going to bring them back down to the rest of the pack. Here's the thing. They're starting a new offense. That too. It's the first. It's the first time Russ has been in a new offense since he was a rookie. Because even when they changed from Bevel to Schottenheimer, most of the playbook stayed the same. They're not going to start off as the number one ranked offense. So, are they going to be such a house of fire in the second half? I, a, what I hope is that they average more points per game. I hope they average five more points per game in the second half of the year than they do in the first half. If you tell me that's going to happen, I sign up for it right now. What if they average very few points in the first half of the season and that's why the increase happens? Well, probably won't be very pleased with that, but I would <laughs> technically I'll run that risk. I'll okay. I'll run that ri- I'll run that risk. I think I think if this season if their scoring average improves, if it's 5 points higher in the second half than it is the first half, we're going to be very excited about how this team is playing going into the playoffs. Are you buying it? I'm selling it too. We had Ray Roberts on earlier this week former offensive lineman, a first-round pick, a tackle. And he had some interesting comments about the Seahawks' offensive line, specifically the interior. The two guards have a really good chance at being, like, the best guard duo in the league because they are very good football players. I mean, like, everything they do, their, their footwork, their pad level, their finish, their tenacity, their toughness, all that kind of stuff. They do really, really, really well. And to me, the middle of that offensive line is going to be the key to the offensive line. Buy or sell, the Seahawks could have the best guard duo in the National Football League. I'm buying it. I'm buying it because I want it to be true. But that's not good logic. (laughs) No. No, but that's that's what I'm going with. I'm buying because I want it to be true. I'm buying Bitcoin because I want it to stay at the same level that it's at right now. Yeah, we're not talking about Dogecoin as much as we as as we had no. many, either anymore. I don't know how that turned out. I, I think I still own some of it. You do? Um, yeah, I think so. Diamond I think hands. in my, my yeah my my high school be, uh, group syndicate. I I know this for a fact. 
uh, when one of the dudes, Sharif, who we call the reefer, when when yeah. the reefer wanted us to buy more, we were like, "You're on your own with that one, buddy." I don't think that worked out well for him. I I don't I don't know for sure, but I don't think that worked out. Yeah, I want to see. That sounds that sounds very very logical to me. Gabe Jackson is maybe the the biggest acquisition they made on the offensive line since Dwayne Brown, right? And someone who John Gruden was talking about as the best guard in football just two years ago. And we love Damian Lewis. Yeah, best guard duo in football. Let's go. Here's why I'm selling. Because I actually think it is potential. Uh, there is a potential for it to happen. I watched them in training camp. There have been some moments, too, where I, I saw them in one-on-one drills, and they looked pretty good. I don't know what's going on at center. And you are a sum of your parts on the offensive line. And if the guy that's in between you is someone who's not particularly good, then what are you? Ultimately, I wonder about what's even going on at center for the Seahawks. I don't know that Ethan Posick's going to be the guy. It sounds like Greg Bell of the— of the of, just banged up. Well, he's, just, he's just got a little hamstring issue. It's going to be fine. We've Paul. heard it suggested that fine. Kyle Fuller might be the starting center going into the year. I, 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 and Ethan Posick wasn't very good last year at the end of the season. So I, I, I wonder because of the center position about the possibility of that. I am selling. Sold in the back row. Thank you very much. You're the buyer. We have time for one more. Do we? Do we? We do not. We will continue this at another date. The hit game show that's sweeping America. Are you buying it? It's Danny and Galan on 710 ESPN Seattle. What's more important for the Seahawks to get done? Jamal Adams' contract or Dwayne Brown's contract? We'll continue that conversation next.